Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it does not return void. And we thank you that it is not an old antiquated book, but it truly is the living, breathing word of God. Lord, I pray for each one of us here tonight again that, Lord, you would take your word and, and just pierce our hearts with it, Father, and conform us more to your image. Help us to be the men and women of God you've called us to be. Lord, to be salt and light to a lost and dying world. And Lord, to show people the love of God supernaturally in, in and through us, Father. So Lord, we just ask that, again, you would be our teacher tonight. That man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. My title tonight's message, Manna from Heaven. But I also titled it, God's Provision in the Wilderness of Sin. So tonight we're going to continue to see Israel's, what I call, wilderness training. The process of sanctification that takes place between Egypt and Canaan. Between the place of bondage and the land of promise. Remember we talked about this for several weeks, how that the, the path straight, if you took a straight path from Egypt to Canaan, it would be about a 10 or 11 day walk. God's plan was to take them on a longer journey that would last about a year to prepare them for Canaan. And we know that they end up being in the wilderness for about 40 years because of their disobedience. Uh, from the deliverance, we're going to see again that, that God has delivered them from Egypt. And it's one thing to get the people out of Egypt, and it's another thing to get the Egypt out of the people. Egypt in the Bible, or in, in Exodus, is a typology of what? Who remembers? Sin, the world. Sin of the world. Bondage is a typology of sin, and Egypt is a typology of the world. And so they've been delivered from the world. They still have to have the world removed from them. And we too, as Christians, we struggle with that. That as Christians, we're new creations in Christ, and we're no longer of the world, but we still live in the world, and we need to have the world taken out of us. Now, on their journey, we know that they stopped several places along the way, and each one was significant. The first stop that we talked about was a place called Sokoth, which means tent town or town of tents. And again, that's a picture to us that we are just passing through, that as we've been delivered from bondage of sin, that this is our temporary home. That we're not, you know, we're all renting. Whether you own your house or not, we're all just renting. Amen? This is not where we're going to end up for eternity. And so it's temporary. And as they were traveling, we know that they had their, their stuff on their backs, and they were traveling through uh, on their way to the land of promise. And the first place they stopped was Sukkoth. The second place they stopped was a place called Ethan. And it means with them. And we know that it was on the edge of the wilderness, but even though they were on the edge of the wilderness, God was with them. And so even in your life, as you go through realizing that this is a temporary dwelling place that you live in now, and then you realize that sometimes you feel like you're alone, that you're never alone, that God is always with you, that He'll never leave you nor forsake you as you travel through the difficulties of life. Then the third place they stopped, we saw a couple weeks ago, was uh, Piahiroth and Migdal. Between those two places, there was a mountain and a tower there, and between those two, we know that they encamped. And behind them was the Red Sea, and coming toward them was the army of the Egyptians. We know that the Egyptians panicked when they realized that they had lost their labor force, even though the ten plagues had come upon Egypt, and now they were coming with full force with the, the only strength they had left, their army. And we know God was going to reveal himself to the Egyptians once again. And in the midst of that rock in a hard place, what happened? Remember that Moses raised the rod. The rod is a typology or a picture of what? Who remembers? The cross. And when they held up the rod, the sea was parted. Israel was delivered through the sea, and Egypt was judged in the sea. Again, the cross of Christ is either a place of deliverance or a place of judgment, depending on which side of it you're going to fall. Then their fourth stop, after getting through the Red Sea, we know that they worship. We talked about this last week. The first song in the Bible. 
And we know it's a song that we're going to sing in heaven. The Bible talks about that. We're going to sing it during the millennial reign. It's called the Song of Moses. First song anywhere in the Bible. And they praise and they worship God because they've been delivered. And because we've been delivered, we too should have a heart to worship God. Amen? You've been delivered from sin. Doesn't that make you want to worship? The fact that you're going to heaven, the fact that you've been saved, the fact that you're born again, it should give us a heart to worship and lift up our voices and praise Almighty God. And that's what happens on the other side of the Red Sea. But we know their worship was short-lived because remember, right after they left the Red Sea, they came to the fourth place, and the place was called Shur, the wilderness of Shur. Shur means wall. And sometimes in our walk with God, we can be in a place of worship, in a place where we're drawn near to God, and then we leave that place and we run right into a wall. We run right into a trial. And we know what happened was that they were, they were thirsty, they began to murmur against God, they murmured against Moses, and they finally found some water in a place called Morah, and we know that the water was bitter. But then what did God command Moses to do? He commanded Moses to go and grab a tree and drop it into the water, and the water would no longer be bitter, but it would be made sweet. And the tree, again, is a picture of the cross, and the tree was dropped into the water, and the water was made from bitter to sweet. And you know what? Without the cross, the water would have remained bitter. Amen? We would be under bondage to sin, and there'd be nothing we could do. But praise the Lord for the cross. So that brings us to this week. And this week, what we're going to be seeing is that, that they finally stopped in the very end of chapter 15 in a place called Elam. Elam means palms. We talked about that last week being an oasis. That in the midst of this wilderness, it was an oasis. And in that oasis, there were 12 wells of fresh water, and there was also 70 palm trees. And we talked about how the 12 was a picture of the apostles that would come one day. Like 12 wells, through them th flowed rushing uh, torrents of living water, right? God used them to minister. And, the, and water in the, in the Bible quite often points to the Word of God. And so they were used mightily by God to share the Word. And then the 70 palms, we talked about how the palm tree is the only tree on the planet that bears more and more fruit as it gets older until it dies. So it bears more and more fruit. So a palm tree bears fruit. And we know that along with sending out the 12 apostles, the second time the Lord sent out a group of, of men, it was the 70 disciples or missionaries. And I believe this is a foretelling of these men that would go out. So now they're in Elam, this oasis, and that's where they are. And they're going to be moving on from there. And that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 16. And the place they're going to go, the name will probably give it away as to how well they're going to do there. But let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 16. And they journeyed from Elam, from this oasis, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. Now, if you have an idea how things might be going, they're in the wilderness of sin. And in the wilderness of sin, we're going to see Israel struggle once again. We're going to see their short memory come right back to the surface. The wilderness of sin, the word here in, this, in, the, in, in Hebrew, the word here for sin means thorn or clay. Now that's interesting to me because what did they put on Jesus' head before the crucifixion? A crown of what? Thorns. When, they, when Eve and Adam sinned in the garden, when they were deceived, what did the Lord say would now come upon the plants that was never there before? Thorns. Thorn is a picture or a representation of sin, and that's why a crown of thorns was placed upon the head of Jesus Christ. So now they're in this wilderness of sin between Elam on their way to the land of promise. Between an oasis and the land of promise, they are in a place or a wilderness of sin. It says there, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they departed from the land of Egypt. Now, the 15th day of the second month, those of you who are paying attention, they left out of bondage in Egypt on the 15th day of the first month. 
So one month has gone by, and we're going to find out from the text tonight that they've run out of food. Because all they had with them was things that they could carry or push on a cart. They didn't have a whole lot with them. You can imagine between two and three million people would probably eat a lot of food, right? I mean, if I took you guys out to dinner, we'd probably do in a restaurant, just the people in this room. So you can imagine two to three million people traveling along in the wilderness, and now they're going to run out of food. And so they're in the wilderness of sin. They have nothing to eat. And again, they've just been delivered from bondage by Almighty God. But we're going to see how they react to the struggle that, they come, that, that confronts them tonight. Verse 2. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained. Now isn't it interesting how this is like a theme of the children of Israel? How many of you guys have seen the Ten Commandments? Okay, while it's not totally scripturally accurate, I mean it's got some flaws in it, the one thing they do really, really well is when they're out in the wilderness, are they the biggest bunch of whingers you ever saw in your life in that movie? All they ever do is, oh, Moses, you know, we have links and onions. And that Edgar G. Robinson says, oh, you let you draw us out here to die. We're all going to die, right? I mean, and they just do that all throughout the movie, and they get aggravating, right? And I tell you what, they, that's a pretty good depiction of the Israelites. They're out there, they get delivered through the Red Sea, and they run out of food, and instead of praying and crying out to God, they start complaining. They start whining. And you know what? I want to be honest with you. As believers in Christ, there is never a reason for us to complain. Amen? Never. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, and complaining. Now, it doesn't say that. The Bible says that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. But you know what? As believers, sometimes we fall into the trap of being like the world and we want to complain. You know what? We're ha-ha heaven bound, right? Like DC Talk says. We're going to heaven. Amen? And is there anything to complain about for someone who's headed to heaven? Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. But here's what Israel does. They react. They don't trust in God. They don't cry out in desperation for God. They complain. Oh man, here we go again. Things are horrible. Now let me ask you a question. What kind of testimony is it to the world around you about your God if you're a complainer? If you're complaining and whining and moaning and griping all the time, and then you tell them about how wonderful your God is, how do you think that's going to work out? Oh man, I just want to hear all about your God so I can be a complainer too. I want to hear about your God so I can moan and, and be upset all the time. That's the kind of God I want to serve. You know what? That's not peace. And the Israelites have no peace at this point. And the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, and they begin to complain. Look what it says there. And they complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They complained against those that God had given them, given authority over them. And it's amazing how little faith, faith again we have, and how much we complain when we spend, again, here's what happens to me. This is, what, this is the part that gripped me really quick. How much prayer do we see here? Zero. Every time a struggle comes, they don't pray, they complain first. And you know what? That's a habit we can get into as Christians. We can make prayer the last resort instead of our first stop. Amen? The Bible says, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. It's amazing to me when I spend time praying, when I spend time fervently seeking after the Lord, how I have very little to complain about. Amen? But these men don't pray. These men and women, these millions of people, they're not praying. They just start murmuring. And you've got to remember, it's two to three million complainers. How would you like to be the pastor of that church? Two to three million people, and they're all complaining. And here's Moses. You know, I was, out, I was minding my business out in the wilderness. I was just watching some sheep. I was just paying my, paying, you know, I just, it was all good. And then God had to come, and I got these three million complainers that I got to drag with me everywhere I go. They whine and moan. I mean, we part the Red Sea. We bring the plagues. God delivers them, and they just keep on complaining. Verse 3. 
And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to our full. For we have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. Man, it's amazing what a physical focus can do to somebody. They've just been delivered from bondage, and they have this short-term memory. Again, that happens a lot with people who are not very spiritually mature. Their memory is very, very short. You know, if things are good, if things are perfect, if conditions are wonderful, then God is good. But if things are difficult, then they struggle with God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? He's always the same. He's always in control. He's always faithful. He always loves you. No matter what your circumstances are, God loves you the same. Trust Him. But what happens here is Israel, the things get rough. They begin to murmur and complain. And they say, man, you know what? We wish we were back in Egypt. At least back in Egypt, we had, you know, a pot of meat to eat, and we had some bread. And we got to eat until we were full. Now we're out here, and you brought us out here to starve. Now, the sad part about this is selective memory. How many of you ever, when you think back about things, you think about all the good things, but you forget the bad stuff? How many of you have ever done that before, right? Oh, high school was great, man. When you were in high school, you couldn't wait to get out of high school, right? You know, you go to college, oh, yeah, college was wonderful. You couldn't wait to get out when you were in there. But you think back and you think back about all the perfect things, but you forget the difficulties. Well, they're talking about the, the pot of meat they had to eat. Hey, uh, do you guys remember that you were in bondage? You guys were slaves? Do you remember that they beat you every single day? You worked seven days a week from sunup till sundown, and you were building pyramids nonstop? Do you remember that part of it? Forget about the bread and the meat part. Do you remember that you were in bondage? And see, what happens is selective memory. They, they grab onto that one thing instead of trusting in God. No prayer, no seeking the Lord, just hearkening back to the world. Egypt being a typology of the world, sometimes we too, especially when we're younger in our walk and we're going through a difficult time, we can say, man, I remember how things used to be in the world. Maybe I want to go back to my old life. Maybe I want to go back to my old ways. You know, I remember that used to be fun to go out and do those kinds of things. And we see here that these guys, their, their physical humber, hunger reduced them from a plant of rejoicing over their deliverance from bondage and, and also from the Red Sea into murmuring against the very same deliverance. We wish you'd never delivered us. We wish you'd never taken us away. We can, t- we can fall into the same trap, you guys. And the way we fall into that trap is we stop praying. We stop having an eternal focus. We look back on the worldly days of partying and sinful living with, with uh, fondness. I used to have kids, you know, most of you know I was a youth pastor for about 15 years. And I used to have kids in the youth group tell me you know, that, Oh yeah, you know, it's really fun to part. I go, yeah, it's really fun to wake up in the gutter puking. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Isn't it great to do stuff that you didn't know what you did because you're, you're so out of control? And that, that's just wonderful. That's, that's fantastic. And the headache you wake up with the next day. And DUIs are really a lot of fun when they arrest you and take you down to jail and take your car away. Oh man, that's just a blast, man. I, oh man, I wish I could do more of that. You know, and, and what happens is they buy into Madison Avenue and, you know, the Budweiser commercials. You know, you have a beer and there's going to be a party and it's just going to be wonderful. It's a disaster. It's, it's selective memory. It's short-term memory. It's not remembering the consequences that sin brings. Sin always has consequences. Amen? And we see here that God had delivered them from bondage. He delivered them from sin. He had delivered them through the Red Sea. He was taking them to the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. And they're saying, we want to go back to Egypt because back there we had some meat to eat and some bread. They didn't cry out to God. They didn't trust God for his provision. They, you know, I mean, you would think that 10 plagues would say, wow, our God's pretty awesome. Wow, that, yeah, that probably... And then you walk it through a sea and the water's stored up on both sides. That, that were... And then it flows back in and drowns all the chariots. 
Oh, that, and then throwing a tree into the water, and the water goes from bitter to sweet, and you're drinking that water. You'd think at some point they would finally realize that God is God and God is faithful. Amen? But instead, they continue to murmur, they continue to complain. You brought us out into this wilderness to kill us. How illogical is this? If the Lord wanted them dead, you could have drowned them in the Red Sea. You could have left them in Egypt. God didn't save you to destroy you. Amen? God gave you life, what desires you have life and life more abundant. God saved you to use you for His glory, that He might be glorified in and through your life. So how does this great and awesome God respond? What does He do to these complainers? They're moaning, they're complaining, they're murmuring once again. Three million people complaining. And the Lord, does He just smoke them with fire? You know, maybe that might be what I would have done. You know, you know what? You guys, I'm sick of it. And could have toasted them. But He didn't do that. What does He do instead? Look at verse 4. Look how our God responds. And you know what? It's a blessing to me. Because sometimes I'm that whiner, and I'm that complainer, and it's good to see the grace of our God. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So how does God respond to the complaining and the murmuring and the whining of the Israelites? He blesses them. Isn't our God good? Even when we are totally blowing it, we're totally out of His will, He loves us anyway. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we were good. He died for us because He's good. Amen? He paid the price so that we might have eternal life. And He looks down, and even though they're whining and they're complaining and they're griping, He loves them. You know, I thought about this. You know what? I, would, I love my kids. And I look at my children, and I know those of you who have kids, you know what I'm talking about. I love them so much it hurts, and I would never do anything to harm my kids. Even if they're totally out of control, I would make sure they were fed and cared for. Amen? And if me being an imperfect dad would do that, how much more will our Heavenly Father, the perfect Almighty God, make sure that we're cared for? Amen? And He will care for us, and that's what He does. So He rains down bread from heaven. He says He's going to test them. Now, how is He going to test them? What's His test going to be? He's going to test them in what they do with the bread that He gives them. Now, it's interesting to me that bread has become a term for money, right? Give me some bread, right? People talk about that and use it for money. And you know what? God, is same test is going on today. You know, what are you going to do with the bread I give you? And the same is true for us. What are we going to do with what the provision God has given us? Now, most of you have been coming to church for more than one week. No, I don't, I'm not, it's not about money at Calvary Chapel. I don't, we don't even pass a basket. We don't ask for your money. God will provide. You feel led to give, you give, and you give only if you can give cheerfully. I don't want your money, okay? God, Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider. But I believe that you can really tell someone's heart by whether or not they give. The Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And God's looking down and he sees that he drops this provision in our lap. And the way that we care for the provision that he has given us will be a reflection of our heart. And the way that they respond to the bread that he gives them will be a reflection of the heart of Israel. This is going to be a test for them to see if they will walk in His ways. I'm going to bless them yet again. I'm going to drop this bread on them and let's just see how they respond to my provision for them. Are they going to be faithful? Are they going to be obedient? Give us this day our daily bread, the Bible says. And that's exactly what He does. And then He desires to see what we will do with what He has blessed us with. Verse 5, And it shall be on the sixth day they shall prepare what they bring in and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Verse 7. 
Verse 6, excuse me. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? You shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, because you're going to see yet another miracle. Again, we've talked about this. How many miracles do they need to see before they finally realize that he's God? But you know what? I look at my own life. And how many miraculous things have I seen God do? And there's times when I still doubt. There's times when my faith is still not what it should be. There's times when I go through difficulty and I just want it to be over. How many of you can relate to that? I just, Lord, just, you know, purify someone else, right? I mean, Lord, I, I, I mean, you know, I'm patient enough. Lord, I, you know, give me patience and give it to me right now. But, you know, Lord, I, I just want to be past this. And, you know, I, the, this is a test to them. They're going to find out, but God's going to pour out yet another miracle to reveal himself to him again. I've, had, I've seen times in my life where, you know, I was diagnosed when I was 14 years old with a tumor right behind my cheekbone here, and God took it away. But yet sometimes when I pray for my kids and, and God heals them, I'm surprised. You know, you know what I mean? You pray, I've prayed with people with head-to-toe cancer as a pastor, and they come back and tell me they're healed, and I'm blown away. Well, I was praying for it, and then it happened, and I'm like, really? Oh, wow. You know, I mean, and that's pretty sad, isn't it? But I, but I have to confess to you, you pray for a cold, and there's a greater deal of faith than when someone says, yeah, you've got a week left to live, and they've got cancer, and you, you, know, you pray for them, and then when they're healed, your, your mind's blown, right? It's a lack of faith. God does another miracle to increase our faith, and God's going to do another miracle before Israel to increase their faith, to give them an opportunity to truly see Him for who He is. God's going to reveal His glory to them one more time. But before we come down again too hard on Israel, we need to seek our own, our own heart, look at our own ways, look at our own way that we respond to the Lord when we go through difficulty. Verse 8, Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you made against Him, and what, are, what are, and what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Now this is interesting, that they didn't complain directly against the Lord, but they complained against Moses and Aaron. But their response is, when you complain, you're not complaining against us, you're complaining against God. And you know what? Here's the application for each one of us. When we complain against our boss, we complain about our neighbors, we complain about our finances, we complain about our health, we're complaining against God. Why is that? Because God is the one who gave you your boss. God is the one who gave you your neighbors. God is the one who watches over your health. God is the one who's in charge of your finances. Amen? And so when you complain, you're complaining against Him. So just remember, when you go to work tomorrow, you don't work, you know, most of you guys know I still work full-time. I don't work for Pacific Bell. I work for the Lord. Amen? He's my boss. And I should do my job in a way that honors Him that he would be glorified and magnified and lifted up in the way that I do my job. And when I murmur and complain against my boss, what I'm doing is I'm murmuring and complaining against God because he's the one that put me there. When I murmur and complain about my neighbors, God's the one that put me there. He put me there to be salt and light, not to, not to distract people away from the kingdom of God, not to cause people to run away from the truth. You know, I had a statement I used to use in youth group all the time. Three words. Prayer, praise. Prayer, praise. You can't say something nice, pray for him. Amen? You can't do either one, then just be quiet. Prayer, praise. And the youth group kids would be really good at catching each other all the time. And I'll never forget, I went to a graduation, and, and it blew me away more than anything else I've ever heard at a graduation. I went to the 12th grade graduation of a kid that was in my youth group down in Lancaster, and he, he got this award. It was a Christian school, and the award was for Christ-likeness. 
And when they introduced him, his, his teacher said this, the principal said this, in the four years he has been at this high school, I've never heard him say one bad word about anybody or ever complain about anything. And man, I was convicted. I went, oh, wow. You know, he's in my youth group, I ought to be in his youth group. You know what I mean? I mean, here's this kid, so in love with God that he understands prayer praise. He understands that it's, you know, we need to be thankful for what we have. We need to be people who good things come from our lips. Out of the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. Amen? If my heart's in love with God, if my heart's in love with the Lord, I'm going to speak praiseworthy things. I'm not going to be complaining and murmuring and bickering and bitter. Again, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace. Honor God by loving and blessing and serving those around you. Don't bring harm to them. Don't bring harm to His name by being people that are bitter. As Christians, we should never be bitter. Don't be surprised when the world acts like the world. When your boss acts like he doesn't know God, if he doesn't know God, why are you surprised? Amen? You know, when a dog barks, you don't go, whoa, a dog's bark, because dogs are supposed to bark, right? When dogs bark, you go, oh yeah, it was a dog, he's barking. Well, when an unsafe person acts like an unsafe person, well, duh, they don't know the Lord. Well, man, my boss is so greedy. Well, if he doesn't know God, pray for him. Pray for his salvation. Pray for a chance to minister to him. Be salt and light to him. Love him. Serve him unconditionally. Serve him so much that it blows his mind and he wants to know your God. Amen? Man, what's different about you? Be the employee that just blows his mind and says, man, I wish I had 50 more people like him. What's different about this person? You're going to have a much better opportunity to minister to those around you if you live a life sold out for the Lord. Verse 9. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Now, you have to remember that how do they, how do they know that the word of Aaron is the word of God? Today, we have a proof text when somebody speaks to make sure it's truly from God. And our proof text is right here. Amen? 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents and three languages over 1,500 years with one central theme and no contradictions. And how is that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? And so what is the proof text for us? This is it. And you know what? If somebody proclaims the truth, there's two words for prophecy. There's foretelling and there's forthtelling. And I believe the greatest amount of prophecy that goes on today is the forthtelling, proclaiming the truth of God's word. Well, in Moses' day, Moses hadn't written, you know, he's the one that wrote the first five books of the Bible, and they're only in Exodus right now, so he hasn't written anything, okay? And so how do they know that when Aaron gets up, that this is truly the word from God? How do they know? Well, if the Lord appeared in the cloud, that would probably clue me in that the stuff he's saying is probably right on. Amen? And that's exactly what happens here. The Lord's going to appear in the cloud, and they go, oh, yeah, this is God's word then. Uh, Aaron's speaking, and the Lord shows up. Yeah, that, that probably works. And so that's the confirmation. Now the confirmation for us is we check it out against the word of God. So we see here that the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. Verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat. In the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God had revealed himself to Egypt through plagues. And amazingly we witnessed God's grace as the people faithlessly complain, and he's going to bless them anyway, and he's going to reveal to him, himself to them through blessing. So he reveals himself to unbelievers through plagues, and he revealed himself to believers through blessing, to Israel through blessing. And I wouldn't even call them believers, they were his chosen people. So he's going to reveal himself to them through this blessing. Verse 13, So it was that the quails came up at the evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all 
around the camp. So the very evening, that night, they're crying out, and all of a sudden there's quail all over the camp. Now the part about this part of the, this miraculous thing that has happened is that God brought quail out of the sky. Now it's interesting that in that region, quail were pretty common, but God brought the quail out of the sky to feed His people. And this part, while miraculous, may not be considered supernatural in a sense. It is supernatural, of course, but they at least could explain it. Well, there's quail all over here, and they all just, you know, they all showed up, and, and they fell down dead, and we've got a bunch of quail laying around, and now we've got food to eat. But what's interesting to me is along with this natural thing that he does supernaturally, he's going to do something that nobody can explain. And you know what? That's the way a lot of times God answers our prayers. Sometimes he'll do it in a very natural way, something that really makes sense and pretty easy to understand. You know, you you're struggling financially, and then somebody from, somebody from church comes up and says, you know, God put it on my heart just to give you this. Now, that may not be supernatural, but it is that God put it on their heart, and then they hand you the money, and you go, oh, well, praise the Lord. But what's supernatural is when you got head-to-toe cancer, and nobody can explain, the doctors say you're done, and that's it, and there's nothing we can do, and just go home and wait to die, and then all of a sudden, people pray for you, and you don't have cancer anymore. That would be supernatural. Amen? That would be something nobody can explain. The doctors can't even figure it out. So God works both ways. He'll move on the hearts of men to come and do something that, and again, that's supernatural as well, but it may be easier to understand. You say, oh, well, but that's still God moving. This is still God moving when the quail fall out of the sky, and it's going to be God moving when the manna comes next. Verse 14. And when the layer of dew was lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as the frost of the ground. Verse 15. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now manna, we're going to see later in the text, they call it manna, and manna means, what is it? They don't know what it is, so they called it, what is it? They'd never seen this before, it had never, it had never been around before, and God dropped it out of the sky. Now this is the interesting part about this, though, is as we move on through the text, that we're going to see that they go out and they gather it. And each man is going to gather 16 ounces of this stuff. Every single day. Now, how many people are there? Between two and three million. I'm a math guy, and we'll go into it in a minute, but I was blown away at how much stuff was falling out of the sky every single night. God provided supernaturally, and God will provide for us supernaturally. Manna in this context here is a type of two things. It's a type of the Word, and it's a type of Christ. And Christ is the Word. Amen? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And later in John 1, 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's who Jesus is. And this is a typology of Christ. We're going to see that as we go through this. Jesus. Now, interesting. I want to take a moment and look at this. Where are they right now when the manna comes? They're in the wilderness of what? Okay. And watch what is going to deliver them in the wilderness of sin. This manna. Now, we know this about the manna. The description we're going to see later is that it's very, very small. Very small. You know, people think it's bread falling in the sky, like loaves of bread. It's, it came down in the dew, and it says it's like frost on the ground. It's very small. Small representing a picture of our Lord's humility. We find out later that it's round, and it's perfectly round. Perfectly round, representing the eternity of our God, never-ending circle, and its perfection. We also know that it's white, which represents the purity of Almighty God. And lastly, it's sweet, because we know that our Lord is our sweet Savior. Verse 16. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person. That's roughly 16 ounces. According to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children 
of Israel did so and gathered some, some more and some less. So they went out and they gathered it, and they gathered it all up, and I figured it out that it would be about six, well, excuse me, it wasn't eight, uh, it was between three and four pints, a lot more than 16 ounces. I looked it up in a measurement book in my Bible, okay? And then it's, so if there's two to three million people and it's between three and four pints apiece, that's about six million pounds of manna falling out of the sky every day. I figured that's 3,000 tons. And then I looked on a chart and that's 10 trains with 20 boxcars each every single day dropped out of the sky of manna. Now you think that that, uh, that would probably... Yeah, you know, God's God. I mean, you know, we're all hungry and God's feeding us and it's dropping out of the sky and it's showing up. We've never seen this before and we're called to go out and gather it up. He says, go out and gather this up and this is the manna that I'm giving to you. I'm providing for you. God can do things supernatural, exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. So when they measured it by omers, he gathered, he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one need, each one's need. And what's interesting about this, God gave the perfect amount. God's word is sufficient for all men. God gave exactly the amount that they would need for all of them to survive. Every single man, woman, and child will be able to eat to their fill, and it will be exactly the amount that they needed. Some took extra because they, maybe they were big eaters or had a big family, and some took less, but they all had enough. Nobody lacked anything. And again, with it being a typology or a picture of God's word, God's word is sufficient for all of mankind. Amen? It'll feed every single one of us. It is sufficient. Verse 19, And Moses said, Let no one leave anything until morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So God's provision was that they were to take no more than they needed. But some people still didn't trust God. They said, you know, they're looking down at the food on the ground. Now, you've got to remember, they've been hungry. They've run out of provisions. And they run out, and they take what they need. But then they take a little extra and say, well, just in case God changes his mind and there's no bread here tomorrow, we want to have some extra stuff stored up at our house. But they've been commanded not to do that, and they did it anyway. Well, guess what happened to the extra that they took back to their house? It, worms filled it up, and it stunk. You know what? We need to learn to trust God. When you disobey God's command, you're going to have problems. It was supernatural that, that, that bread turned into worms and bread started to stink. Again, for God's word to nourish us, it must first be mixed with faith. Amen? You must take the truth of God's word and mix it with faith for it to truly minister to us. And here it is, this truth that's been delivered to them, but they must have enough faith to trust God to say, Lord, I trust you, and I'm going to do exactly what you say, and even though it doesn't totally make sense to me, and even though I'm very, very hungry, and there's a temptation to take a bunch home and hang on to it, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to just take just what I need and nothing extra. I'm going to trust you to provide for me tomorrow. Verse 21. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. This bread provided every morning would only remain until the sun rose. The word is available, but we must raise up to receive it, is what I wrote down. You know, the word of God is available, but we must open it up to receive the word. Amen? You know, the, the bread was right out there on the, on the ground, but they had to get up and go get it. Amen? God poured out the bread, but they had to respond. And God pours out his word upon, to us. He gives us the Holy Spirit to us. But you know what? He's not going to cram His Word in our head. Amen? He wants you to open up the Bible and spend intimate time with Him that you might grow in your knowledge and understanding of Almighty God. You know what? As Christians, it's, it's sad, but it's true. 
I mean, somebody asked John Corson, I think I told this a few weeks ago. Someone said to John Corson, you know, man, another pastor, man, I wish I knew the Bible like you do. And John Corson said, well, if you spend as much time in, his, in it as I do, you probably would. You know, a lot of, he said a lot of pastors on their, on their day off, they go grab a fishing pole and go down to a lake somewhere, and they throw their rod in and sit out of a lake all day. On his day off, he says he gets a, uh, a beach chair, goes down to the lake, sits with his Bible, reads his Bible for eight hours, and goes and drives and buys some fish on the way home and takes it home and eats it, right? He says, you know, the more time you spend in the Word, the more you're going to know the Word, the more you're going to fall in love with the Lord. He puts the Word right there available for us, and we just walk by it every single day. You know, it's really sad to me to see people take the Koran and treasure it. And then you go into some people's houses and they can't find their Bible. You know, kids in our youth group would leave their Bible and I would take their Bible and I would put it in my office at the church and leave it there and find out how long it would take for them to, fi- to find out it was missing. If it takes you a month, a month to figure out your Bible's gone, that's not a good sign. Amen? If you haven't figured out your Bible's gone in a month, uh-oh, you're probably not reading it a whole lot. And so what happens is that the, the manna's dropped right there on the ground, but they had to get up early in the morning and go out and get the manna. It was available, but they had to go take it. And you know what? The manna's available for us right here. And the Lord wants us, and you know what? I truly believe, as I was, especially as I was studying the text, I am not, how many of you guys are not morning people? Raise your hand. I am a total night owl to the nth degree. Most of you know that along with working, because I work full time, a lot of times I study for Sunday mornings till four o'clock, on Sunday morning, because I'm wide awake in the middle of the night. But I do believe that it's really important to get up early and begin your day with the Lord. Amen? I believe it sets the whole day on the direction it needs to go. Get up in the morning, just like these guys are rising up in the morning and going out to get the manna, I believe we need to get up in the morning and open up our Bible, or get a devotional book to go alongside it. Remember, devotional books are are vitamins, and this is meat and potatoes. Amen? vitamins are okay, vitamins are okay after you've had dinner, amen, you don't, if you only eat vitamins, you're going to starve, but you need to eat the meat and potatoes first, then go get the vitamins, so read the book first, so open up the Bible, spend time in the Word, and it's amazing to me when I begin my day with the Lord, how much better my day goes, have you ever noticed that, but if you wait till the end of the day to spend time with the Lord, as Pastor Don McClure says in San Jose, he goes, when I do that, I just end up apologizing, right, Oh, I blew it, I blew it, I blew it, I blew it. If you begin the day with him, you can be preparing your heart for how you spend it. So the manna came down in the morning, and they were able to go out and get the manna each and every day that would provide for them that day. Verse 6, and so it was on this, or verse 22, and so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said to them, this is what the Lord has said, tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains and keep to keep until morning. So they laid up till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not sneak, stink. That's good when your food doesn't stink. And it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. And that's also good. Verse 25. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find, find it in the field. Six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now this is interesting because up until this point, even though there were six days of creation and a Sabbath day, there had been no Sabbath among the people. The people worked seven days a week. This is the institution of the Sabbath. Now, what chapter, for those of you who know the Bible, what chapter is the Ten Commandments in where he gives them this, talks about the Sabbath? Exodus 20. What chapter are we in? We're in 16. We haven't got there yet. 
He has not established the law of the Sabbath yet. But he's going to give them a Sabbath, a day of rest. What a blessing. And I love this part that he says, if you will take my manna, I will give you rest. Amen? If you take the Lord, the manna of who Christ is, into your life, even though you may be in the wilderness of sin, he will deliver you from that and he will give you rest. Amen? That's what our God does. And so we see here that they go out and they take extra and they prepare the food so they may rest and give that day to the Lord. Verse 27. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the Sabbath day together, but they found none. Now even though the command was not to go out on the Sabbath, there were some that went out on the Sabbath anyway. Now, I love you guys, but I want to exhort you with something. There is no way in the world you should, have, you should consider taking a promotion or a job that's going to keep you out of fellowship. This makes no sense to me. I talk to people that say, oh yeah, I got this promotion, I just won't be able to come to church anymore, but I'm going to make 10 more grand a year. Well, that's great. You know, I, I'm going to be able to have more stuff, right? Buy more stuff for people I don't know, right? Buy more stuff to impress people I don't know. Buy stuff I don't need with money I don't have to impress people I don't know. I'm going to have more stuff, but I'm not going to be able to spend any time with the Lord. I'm not giving up too much. You know, I'm just not going to have time for the creator of the universe anymore. I'm not going to have time for fellowship anymore. I'm not going to have time to use the spiritual gifts God gives me that are going to last for eternity. I've traded it all in so I can have a little bit bigger pile of dirt, right? So I can have a little bit nicer deck chair on the Titanic, right? I mean, that's what we're doing. We're trading in stuff that is perishing for stuff that is eternal. And these guys went out on the Sabbath, because, and they weren't supposed to. They were supposed to rest in the Lord. And too many people fall into that trap. I don't have time for the Lord. I don't have time for church. I got work to do. And you know the sad part is? That these guys went out, what did they come back with? The text says nothing. Well, you might say, well, Pastor Dave, I work on Sundays. I get double time, and I got some extra money in my bank. Well, let me just tell you something. That stuff is chaff, and it's perishing. And we need, you know, we need, I, I guarantee you this. I've had several jobs where they asked me to work Sundays, and I told them in the interview, I will not work on Sunday. There's no voting on it. We're not doing that. If Sundays doesn't work for you, Wednesday nights either. If those don't work for you, then hire somebody else. You know what's amazing? I've had a job virtually every day of my life since I was 14 years old. I've never gone without. But I just said, you know, I'm going to honor God, and God will provide. And you know what? It's amazing He does. Amen? You think God will keep you from getting a job? You think God will make you make you home? He's not going to do that. Trust Him. And I believe you'll probably get a job easier if you'll honor God and say, I'm going to honor the Lord, and, I, and we're not going to compromise. We're not going to get my family out of fellowship so I can make a few extra bucks. That makes absolutely no sense, and it's contrary to God's heart. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are to seek first the kingdom of God. We're to give Him of our first fruits. We're not to strive for that which perishes. God can provide for you without you having to miss fellowship. Forsake not the gathering of yourselves together. We're almost done. Verse 28. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? He's not speaking specifically to Moses. He's speaking to the people. How long are you guys going to not keep my commandments? Why is it you go out on the Sabbath day and try to gather after I just told you there will be nothing there? It will bear no fruit. You're going to waste your time. I told you to do it on the Sabbath. I mean, to, to do it the day before and rest on the Sabbath. To have time with me personal, intimate time with me, and yet you go contrary to my will anyway. How long are you going to continue to do that? Verse 29. See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. 
Therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. They finally realized after being rebuked by God and going out and striving and trying and realizing, you know what, this is fruitless. Some of you may have experienced that. Maybe you've tried, you know, working two jobs, doing these extra things and forsaking fellowship and realize this is not helping me, it's hurting me. This is not helping my family, it's bringing my family more harm. And finally we see that they realize, you know what, this is, this is to my own detriment. This is my family's detriment. And they stopped. And they began to listen to the Lord. Verse 31. And the house of Israel called its name manna. Again, what is it? And it was like white coriander seed, very small. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. That sounds pretty good, right? Wafers made with honey. I'm thinking like baklava or something, real small pieces. But that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And God didn't just provide for him like an old rag to suck on. He gave him something good to eat, right? That's our God. And so he pours down manna, and it's good. And they're eating manna, and they got quail, and life's pretty good. They've been delivered out of bondage. They get a day off. These guys have never had a day off in 430 years. Talk about a tough job. I mean, no days off for 430 years, sun up to sundown, and they get beaten if they're not moving fast enough, and God gives them a day of rest. Man, you think they would, they would rejoice in it. Amen? Look forward to that time where they can sit and be still with the Lord. Verse 32. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer. Oh, excuse me. Call the man. Okay. This is the thing that the Lord, which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread in which I have fed you in the wilderness, which I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it before the Lord to be kept for your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it before the testimony to be kept. Now, it won't be till in chapter 25 when they have the temple, tabernacle, temple, okay? It's not until then that they will have, they will take this and they'll actually perform this. Well, they will take the Omer and they'll actually put it into the Ark of the Covenant. The testimony here refers to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments will be there. And this was going to be a constant reminder for generations to come of God's provision. Every time they came to worship, it would be a reminder of God's provision. That, that little pot with an omer full of manna. Man, I wish I had some manna. It would be kind of neat. Wouldn't it be nice to have a little, little jar of manna in your house? I mean, you can imagine, oh yeah, that's God's provision right there. That, that's a reminder of how God provided for the people in Egypt. And that's exactly what it was to them. It was a reminder that God is our provider. When later generations came to worship, again, it reminded them, verse 35, And the children of Israel ate manna forty years, until, forty years. Have you guys heard that song by Keith Green about manna? It's pretty funny, about manna bread, and um, manna witch, and a bunch of other stuff. It's pretty funny, but, I mean, he's just talking about all the different ways. I bet they found out a lot of different ways to make manna in forty years, right? By manna soup. I don't know what else they're making with manna, but forty years of manna. But it's interesting to me, that the entire, from the time that they were freed from bondage in Egypt, the world, typology of the world, until the day that they entered in, till they entered into the promised land, they fed on manna. Manna is a typology of the word, amen? It's also a picture of Christ. What is it that delivers us from Egypt, from the world, into the land of promise? It's the Lord. And what is it that we should be feeding on from the day that we're born again and saved 
out of the bondage of Egypt, out of the bondage of the world, until the day we enter into heaven, the land of promise. What should we be feeding on? Manna, the Word of God. Amen? And here's this very clear picture. 3,500 years ago, it's exactly what they're doing. They're feeding on manna every single day. And it's a picture to us, as His children, that we too should be feeding on the manna of His Word. So by the way of review, the manna, it's a representation of the Lord. There's only one thing that can deliver us from the bondage of the world, and that's Jesus Christ. Manna, manna, typology of the Word. If you don't feed on the Word of God daily, you'll fall into the same trap as the Israelites. You'll be looking back to Egypt. The only time you look back to Egypt is when you're not spending time in God's Word. The only time you look back to the world and you think the world's appealing to you is when you're not spending time. It's very rare when you're, when you're spending time in the Word and you're spending time in worship that you're looking to the world. You know what? I'll be honest with you. Maybe I'm just a simpleton. I can only concentrate on one thing at a time, really. And when I'm concentrating on the Word and the Lord and seeking after Him, it's pretty hard for me to be distracted. But if I don't spend time with the Word and spend time with the Lord in His Word, I'm distracted really easily. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. When they feasted on the Word, they had no lack. They entered into His rest. Start your day with the Lord. I want to encourage you guys. It says in Isaiah 50, verse 4, speaking of Jesus, it's a messianic part of Isaiah. It says, He, my Father, awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as, as the learned. You know what's interesting to me? Jesus got up every morning and spent time with His Father. Who's our ultimate example? The Lord is. Amen? And you know what? Spend time with Him every morning for a couple weeks and find out how your day goes. Find out how your life might change. Well, let's close a word of prayer. If the worship team would come on up, we'll close with a song as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You and praise You for Your Word. And we thank You for the example, Lord, of just Your grace and Your blessing upon even those who murmur and complain against You. I thank you, Lord, for your grace in my life. Lord, I know there's times when I've been faithless, I've doubted, Lord, and I just thank you that you continue to love me. I thank you, Lord, for each one of us, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us, not because we're good, but because you're good. And Lord, I just pray for it, that we would learn from the example tonight of the, of the manna, that we too would hunger for that daily touch from you, that daily intimate word with you, that daily intimate time of prayer and just being alone with you, Father, that we might grow in our relationship day by day. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to not be complainers, but, Father, to be people that go to work and serve our Master and honor Him, Lord, with our whole heart. Lord, that they would see you, not that we would be glorified, but that you would be glorified. I pray also, Lord, that we would never be so distracted by the world that we don't take that Sabbath rest, that we don't take that time to sit down at your feet, during the week, Lord, and just bring our family to church and be in a place of fellowship and be in a place, Lord, where you use us to minister to others. So, Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you, Lord. Be with each person who's here the rest of this week, Father. Just bless them, Father. Use them for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.